From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, optic nerve drusen. So in the previous studies, clinical studies, autopsy studies, histological studies, the prevalence of optic nerve drusen varied but somewhere between 0.3% to uh, 2-3%. First this. 2017 marks the launch of a new meeting, the iWorld Surgical Summit in Deer Valley, Utah. The beauty of Deer Valley is astounding. Gorgeous mountains, crisp air, wonderful food, and Deer Valley is justifiably famous for its fabulous skiing. And all of this is just the backdrop to the most convivial and practical meeting of the year. The iWorld Surgical Summit focuses on advances and techniques that you can apply to your practice immediately. Look for links to next year's Surgical Summit at surgicalsummit.iworld.org. And did I mention the skiing? Optic nerve head drusen is a pathology found relatively infrequently and is generally asymptomatic. At least that's what I thought. But if the introduction of OCT to ophthalmology has taught me anything, it is that the frequency of a pathology is dependent upon the sensitivity of the detecting instrument. Sean Park recently published a study of an OCT technique that allows for detection of optic nerve head drusen that would otherwise have gone unnoticed. And, surprise, the pathology is much more common than any of us supposed. We're going to be talking about optic nerve head drusen. Can I get you to briefly describe the pathophysiology of optic nerve head drusen? The pathophysiology of optic nerve head drusen is of course not well understood yet. We know clinical presentation and we know the histology, uh, histological finding of optic nerve and So we postulate based on those findings and um, probably the optic nerve hydrogen mass is the byproduct of axonal degeneration and um, the small scleral opening for the uh, optic nerve uh, pathway will probably impede the normal axoplasmic flow and leading to stasis. And then abnormal axonal metabolism then lead to uh, deposition of calciums, uh, calcium crystals in mitochondria, and then they are extruded uh, from the cell or axon to uh, up to the extracellular space. And um, Subsequently, uh, then they coalesce uh, to form the drusen mass. So that's the current consensus about the pathophysiology of optic nerve drusen. But many things uh, should be done in the future uh, to elucidate the uh, pathophysiology. What is OCT, Enhanced Depth Imaging, EDI OCT? And how do the measurements differ from standard OCT? Enhanced depth imaging OCT is to visualize a little bit deeper portion of the tissue. Uh, the regular OCT, the spectral domain OCT, focuses at, on the surface. For example, the posterior segment OCT focuses on the surface of the retina. Uh, but enhanced depth imaging OCT, uh, the uh, focus is a little bit deeper than that, usually at the choroid level, uh, just above the sclera. I've uh, recently 
uh, read again the uh, the original EDIOCT paper published in 2008 uh, by Dr. Richard Spade in New York City. The, uh, the, the most tightly focused portion of the illumination moves from the surface of the retina to a little bit deeper portion by moving the entire machine, the, the source of the beam, towards the closer to the patient's eye. And it usually creates inverted image of, uh, the, of the retina, but now EDIUCT is now more uh, popular so the comp some companies uh, create an uh, automated software which uh, again uh, inverts the inverted image and and shows the uh, the regular regularly uh, aligned image uh, for the DIOCT. It's not that there are uh, hardware differences with the machine. This is is primarily software. And when you say that it's an an inverted image, is it the 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 same sort of thing that I would see when I I misfocus um, the OCT when I'm doing an OCT of the retina. I see that the that the image is is, is inverted. Um, that's correct. So there is no difference in hardware. Uh, it's just that uh, moving the machine towards closer to the eye, and uh, it creates uh, it moves the focus a little bit to the different level, and then the corridor level and uh, Lamina cribrosa, the optic retrusion, those structures you can visualize more clearly. So there's no such thing that EDIOCT specific hardware or machine. How long does an EDIOCT image take to acquire? For uh, this uh, specific study, I the protocol that we used took about two to four minutes per eye. But uh, that is both we took uh, we obtained both horizontal volume scan and vertical volume scan. So, but many cases, uh, many occasions, you just have to just do either horizontal or vertical. Then you can do within one or two minutes. But this the time is there. Are, there are many factors that are, that are related to the the time uh, because. Some patients have may have dry eye, a uh, little bit more significant cataract, or vitreous opacity, or not very cooperative, or moves a lot. Then it takes much more time. But if the patient is cooperative and do not have any uh, significant pathology in the media, then usually about two to four minutes uh, for vertical and horizontal scan prime. You you're having the the patient sit there with the eye open for two minutes or for four minutes. Um, not really. I just encourage uh, the patient. I just say you can blink whenever you want. Uh, before the imaging, I usually put one uh, artificial tear to lubricate the eye. But the eye, the machines, the OCT devices, which has good eye tracker, uh, even though the patient blinks, the eye tracker can track the eye, and they automatically uh, obtain the next scan, the next scan in serially and creates a, a whole set of volume scan. Sean, what was the question that your study sought to answer? So uh, we actually published a paper uh, previously regarding optic nerve vitrosin and using EDIOCT, and we showed uh, how useful the EDIOCT method is in evaluating the optic nerve vitrosin. 
And then um, we, our lab has been uh, conducting a study about the optic nerve head in terms of glaucoma and other optic neuropathy, and especially the lamina cribrosa uh, structure. And in normal patient, in normal subjects, we found this characteristic sign of optic nerve extrusion uh, quite frequently, more frequently than we expected. Then we uh, we uh, la we launched this study to evaluate the prevalence of this uh, hyperreflective bands, uh, which we think is characteristic of optic nerve atrosis. So, Sean, you talk about these uh, hyperreflective bands. Um, how did you define optic nerve head drusen uh, for the purpose of, of this study? What, tell, tell me a little bit more about the image signature that would constitute uh, an, an ONH drus. So in our previous study a few years ago, uh, we published a paper using EDIOCT uh, about optic nerve head drusen, and we found that the classic optic nerve head drusen patients uh, which means you can detect optic nerve and using ultrasound as a, a hyperechogenic uh, mass. And in clinical photograph, you can see the uh, yellowish uh, globules at the border of the optic nerve uh, optic disc. And those uh, globules were, uh, in OCT image, a hypo-reflective core surrounded by a very short multiple hyperreflective bands. Um, and the image quality was, was very good, and we uh, found that EDIOCT is much more helpful than any other modalities in evaluating the shape, size, and volume of the optic nerve hydrogen. And then we found that beside the hyperreflective core, uh, surrounded by hyperreflective bands, there there were uh, a few uh, isolated bands without any core, and then we postulated that oh, this hyperreflective short band might be the earliest sign of optic nerve extrusion, and th those bands were all, always uh, horizontal, which means perpendicular to the beam, and. In this study, in the present uh, in the present study, we used that band as the characteristic sign of uh, optic nerve intrusion. Sean, what were your findings? What were your results? So, in the previous studies, clinical studies, um, autopsy studies, histological studies, the prevalence of optic nerve intrusion varied, but somewhere between zero point three percent to uh, two to three percent. But in our study, the prevalence uh, among eyes was uh, almost 10%, and among subjects was almost uh, 15%, which was much higher than previous, uh, pre previously known prevalences. So um, that was very interesting. And, but the, the prevalence of disease usually increases uh, as the technology advances, as the as you use more and more sophisticated diagnostic uh, mach uh, tools, so uh, that was our main finding. Yeah, I, I can I can understand the uh, point that 
you know, if you have some someone who doesn't have clinical characteristics of optic nofedrusin, um, there would be no reason that you'd be doing an ultrasound on that patient anyway, and uh, you have a means now to to detect these these patients. So I can, but even so, you know, to to be finding uh, two orders of magnitude more uh, patients is a substantial difference. What was the detection resolution? Uh, of this methodology? So the hyperreflective bands, when you see optic uh, nerve head cross-sectional image of OCT or EDI-OCT, you will see a lot of noises and speckles. And we wanted to minimize and or reduce the, the false positive results. So we uh, measured almost 100 uh, hyperreflective bands in clinically Definite optic nerve uh, patients. So, so uh, it, uh, the ultrasound uh, confirmed the presence, and the clinical photo definitely shows the drusen. And in those eyes, we measured the hyperreflective bands, and the average length was about 110 micrometers, and with a standard deviation uh, of about 33. So we set. Uh, the mean minus two standard deviation as the minimum length of the optic nerve drusen band in our the current study to reduce um, the false positive. So, in other words, maybe the true prevalence of uh, this short hyperreflective bands uh, of optic nerve drusen might be even greater than 10% per, uh, in the eyes. So I follow what you're saying. So you. You used uh, a, a value of uh, 45 microns as a, a cutoff, so, but that's not to say that optic nerve drusen can't be smaller than that. It's that you wanted to minimize uh, uh, false positives, have a very nice s signal to, to noise ratio. Um, so, w what do you make of this relatively high prevalence of? Um, of optic nerve head drusen in clinically normal patients. This, I, I, I'm going to let you answer, honest. Um, but the, the, this is reminiscent for for me of the sort of pre-corneal topography textbooks on keratoconus that said that keratoconus was, you know, present in one percent of the population, and then for other reasons we started to do topography on a lot of patients, and we started to see what we called form first keratoconus. Um, and, you know, so, so I w wonder whether this, this isn't kind of your sort of form first optic nerve head drusen. Uh, but at any rate, what do you make of, of this high prevalence in clinically normal patients? So considering the, the current consensus about the pathophysiology, so if it's really the byproduct of the axonal degeneration, then uh, probably that kind of degeneration is very common. Even not 10%, but even maybe 20 or 30% of time, uh, we may have that the same kind of uh, axonal degeneration, but it's, it, uh, it's not so fast and it's not so severe to form something pathological mass in the optic nerve retrusion. So we just found uh, pat this, this study, the implication of this study is 
uh, it adds uh, something to, uh, it enhances our understanding in terms of the pathophysiology, I think. Uh, as I said just now, uh, that uh, axonal degeneration occurs much more often uh, than we thought, but uh, it does not really become clinically evident because it's uh, quickly compensated by our uh, normal uh, physiology. So when I see patients, uh, I do EDIOCT for various reasons. In a, if I detect this finding in certain patients, in certain uh, patient without any obvious uh, clinically evident disease, then I usually tell them that this is nothing to worry about, but this uh, means I just need to see you in one year just to, uh, just to make sure that you're okay. And if the same finding uh, is uh, detected in one year, then I, see, I say, well, it seems that it has been very stable, so I don't have to see you every year. So maybe two to three years, I can see you again and do the same test. One of the interesting findings that, 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 you, that you published was an association between optic nerve hydrosin and short axial length. And also uh, an association between optic nerve hydrosin and small optic nerve heads. Has this association been described before this study? And why do you think this association exists? Um, yes, this was uh, uh, by clinical observation, the association between a small optic nerve head and optic nerve hydrosin were published in uh, 1980s. Uh, one of the study was published in 1985 by um, uh, Muley uh, and Sanders, and another study by uh, Jonas and colleagues. And both of them clinically measured the optic nerve uh, head size and correlated with the presence or absence of the optic nerve hydrosin. So uh, it was known. Uh, and your second question was, why uh, do I think this association exists? Um, well, one can say that, oh, uh, the optic nerve hydrosin is the byproduct of axonal degeneration. Uh, so then the smaller optic nerve uh, may impede the axoplasmic anti-grade or retrograde uh, flow. Then there might be a higher chance of having some axonal degeneration. But that consensus, that path hypothesis about uh, pathophysiology came from this uh, observation, the clinical observation. So I cannot say that this uh, is probably because of uh, this or that. No, I, I understand it would be circular reasoning, but still, the, it, it, it's, an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting finding. I mean, the, the idea of, um, of, degeneration from congestion that is then causing the uh, drusen. Um, does the relatively high incidence of optic nerve drusen that you found mean that there that the, the, this overall process is less pathological than was previously thought because the detection before had to be physically of, of larger drusen? Um, well, the optic nerve drusen, the clinical significance of uh, the severity of optic nerve hydrosin, the disease is, uh, the, the disease severity, well, 
we know we already know that we already know that it's very slow process and it's very rare that optic nerve extrusion causes any significant vision loss and even blindness but we also know that it it happens so this does not change the uh, uh, the, the our perceived um, uh, feeling of safety or, or danger about the optic nerve extrusion, the disease entity, but um, it just um, uh, it just shows that it was uh, more prevalent in a subclinical level, and once it becomes clinically significant, it's always a clinical dilemma. There is no uh, known treatment for the optic nerve extrusion. The, the technology is really, really neat. I mean, I, I, th I think it's really cool. Uh, how are you, well, are, are you using EDI OCT clinically in, in your own practice? Yes, as a uh, uh, glaucoma specialist, I, uh, uh, many times I you order opti uh, the volume scan of the optic nerve head, hor uh, horizontal and vertical. Um, there are a few reasons. Um, first, uh, one of uh, if when I do uh, surgery, or when the patient's pressure eye pressure is very high, uh, that is usually before surgery. Uh, so, and we do the uh, the EDIUCT to look at the lamina cribrosa, bowing and the depth, and then if compare with uh, the lamina depth after surgery, after the pressure is normalized. Um, that shows us that the laminar depth and posterior bowing uh, shows us how the optic nerve head, how much stress the optic nerve head has. So when it's relieved, then we know the prognosis. We, uh, that helps me to understand the prognosis of this patient. Sometimes even though pressure is lowered, the depth does not really change. That means the opti the lamina cribrosa has been there for too long time, and it's not so compliant. So uh, even though the pressure is lowered, the optic nerve head is still under uh, significant stress. Another another occasion, of course, optic nerve extrusion. When I suspect optic nerve extrusion, or when I suspect uh, when I see a very small optic nerve and with uh, weird visual field loss, then I always order uh, EDI-OCT. And a uh, third uh, one is when I, some, sometimes I see um, the non-glaucomatous optic neuropathy and, um, and the optic nerve had swelling. Then um, is this really a swelling or is this just a very crowded optic nerve? We, when, we, I, when I do EDI-OCT, I can evaluate the, uh, the contour, uh, contour of the, uh, the sclera and the lamina cribrosa. So if it's uh, you know, concave at normal uh, convexity, then that means uh, there's no posterior pressure from the brain, from the CSF. But if it's focally elevated in that region, then that means there is something going on in the brain uh, level pushing the lamina cribrosa and the, the peripheral papillary sclera. 
So that is helpful to, uh, for me to, uh, differential, uh, to do differential diagnosis. Sean, this is really, really cool stuff. The, 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 the technology is neat. Um, the pathology is obviously, you know, as a much wider spectrum uh, than uh, certainly I knew about. Uh, I want to thank you very much um, for bringing this to us, for the generosity of your time with us today. Thank you for your, your invitation, and I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Sung-Chul Sean Park is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology and Director of the Glaucoma Clinic and Research at the Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital of the Hofstra Northwell School of Medicine in New York, New York. His paper, Optic Nerve Head Drusen, Prevalence and Associated Factors in Clinically Normal Subjects Measured Using Optical Coherence Tomography, appears in the March 2017 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Park or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.